Hello, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America, featuring today's top directors sharing behind-the-scenes stories of their latest films and insights into the craft of directing. The Director's Cut is now available on Spotify, so please take a second to subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode takes us behind the scenes of director Adam McKay's new comedic drama, Vice. Inspired by true events, the film follows Dick Cheney as he moves from being a Washington insider and a bureaucrat to George W. Bush's vice president and one of the most powerful men in the world, creating policies that change the country and world in ways that are still felt today. In addition to Vice, Mr. McKay's credits include the feature films Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy, Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, Step Brothers, and The Other Guys, and episodes of the series Saturday Night Live. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Feature Film for his 2015 film, The Big Short. Following a recent screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Mr. McKay spoke with director Gus Van Sant about filming Vice. During their conversation, Mr. McKay discusses how improvisation opened up a way to explore character behavior with the actors, the musical sequence that wound up on the cutting room floor, and Christian Bale's transformation into Dick Cheney. Where did, where, when did you start working on this project? Uh, you know, I think uh, Dick Cheney was always a fascinating character to me, even when I was back in the 90s at SNL. Um, I always just got the feeling like there's a lot more going on here than I thought. I, I Back then, I, I threw it off as kind of a comedic premise and didn't really think about it too much. And then it was really after the big short that a friend of mine that I work with at SNL, uh, Cindy Campanera, had given me a book about Dick Cheney. And... I did that thing, you know, where you finish a movie and your body holds the flu and then lets it go. And I got really sick. And I just said, uh, you look at your bookshelf and you go, here are all the books people have given me. What am I going to read? And I don't know why, but I picked up the one on Dick Cheney. And every four or five pages, I was just like, oh, my God, I couldn't believe the depth and impact and epic nature of his story. So then I went out right away and I ordered, you know, four or five other books and I just kept going and going. Um, so it was about two years ago? Yeah. Was it in sync with uh, any election like the... Um... No. no, no, I, I actually, I thought for sure we were doing the, uh, I was directing the pilot for Succession in New York City uh, for HBO and we had a party set up that night because... We're like, oh, Hillary's going to win. And uh, how cool. I have two daughters. And how great that we're going to have a, a, a female president. This will be amazing. So we all got champagne. Everyone showed up. And, and we were already working on the Cheney movie. And I thought, oh, you know, probably Hillary will win. Maybe they get the House or the Senate. We'll be in that stalemate we've been in for the past eight years. But I thought this will still be a really good story to tell. And then it was like, I remember very early on, a friend of mine wrote for uh, uh, The New Yorker, was like, no, it's over. 
she lost. And we were just devastated. We couldn't comprehend what, what had happened. And the next day we had a, a tech scout. And then a couple days later, I finally turned to my executive producer and said, what about Janie? And then we realized like more than ever, it linked up with what was going on. And, and that was one of the crazy experiences of making this movie was that it, it kept linking up with what was going on in the world. I, I couldn't believe it. I never imagined uh, that some of the obscure concepts in here like unitary executive would link up so much with where the world was going. Yeah, for sure. I mean, <clears throat> it really, I mean, especially right now at this moment. Um, yeah, with the big short and succession and vice, um, there is a commonality of uh, sort of white men failing upwards that um, when you see them one after another, <laughs> which I did, um, it's like, wow, is that a theme that you're Unlike drawn to? Anchorman. <laughs> well, I guess that too, right? Yeah. I mean, we used to joke about that. Will and I would joke about these sort of unearned confidence of the mediocre white guy. And that was kind of how we made Anchorman and Talladega Nights and Step Brothers was just this entitlement of like the white dude, which we were a part of, but we're, we just thought it was hilarious. And <laughs> then it wasn't so funny. Uh, <laughs> it started to swing. And that's really what led to uh, the big short and the world started like that kind of thing became much darker and it was clear that that perspective wasn't going to let go and the world was getting crazier and crazier. So the idea of doing like absurdist comedies about it just became less and less tenable at that point. And so, and so when you're working on a more serious subject, do you find yourself having to hold yourself down with the humor that encroaches probably? Um, in the writing stage or also the shooting, are you monitoring that or you're having to deal with that at all? It's, it's actually the best because you are totally free, usually with a laugh-driven comedy, like, a, you know, just Step Brothers, for example. You gotta pulverize, you have to like keep coming at them. Every line, you're, you never wanna be pinned in by a bad joke, you know, a quote bad joke, and I was just, I remember rewriting the uh, big short and just feeling as free as I had ever felt. And it was like, oh my God, I love this. And even with, with Vice, uh, yeah, there's some funny stuff in there, but it just felt like I'm as free as can be. Like I can write whatever needs to be written. So we, we had really put ourselves in one of the strictest, hardest genres there is, which is laugh-driven comedy, and it is hard. I mean... I joked with Seth Rogen after we finished the big short, Seth Rogen's like, cause he had done uh, Preacher and he said, uh, which is harder, uh, dramatic stuff or comedy? I, I, immediately I was like, comedy, definitely. Like at the end of the day, I'm exhausted. And, and Rogen was like, yes, absolutely. Like it's like in a muscular way, it makes you tired. So I've just loved this experience of the big short, succession, and, uh, and vice. It's just been so freeing. And I've never had such enjoyable writing days. Like, I, I sit in my office, and uh, sadly, our family dog passed away in the last year, uh, Pumpkin, who was a, a, 
shepherd mix, but he would sit on my chair in the back behind me and I would just write. And I just remember the freedom of those days. It felt so great. And, and God bless comedy. I love comedy, but I, I've had the most amazing times writing these movies. There's no question. Um, we talked um, recently about improv and your history in improv theater and a mentor, a friend named Del Close, who um, had invented and sort of um, <clears throat> furthered improv into a kind of a, um, encased experience called uh, something called the Herald, which is a style of improv that's done in LA a lot these days. And Adam worked on his own version called the Armando, which <laughs> is that quite different than the Herald? I mean, it's sort of like our, our, when we came to Chicago, it was around 1990, and you have to remember, and this is hard to get your head around, there was no internet. So we wanted to do comedy, and I was a junior at Temple University. Where did you go to school, by the way, Gus? Rhode Island School of Design oh, in Providence. Much cooler than the school I went to. I regret asking the question, but anyway... Um, <laughs> <laughs> he went to RISD, where the Pixies came from. I went to Temple University, where Bill Cosby came from. So uh, that did not go well. But anyway, no. So I was in this city college, and uh, we were all doing stand-up comedy. We were doing sketch, and we were just hungry. We just wanted to do more stuff. And a friend of mine... Rick Roman went to Chicago and he came back and he said, there is a scene there, like no scene you have ever seen. And it's Del Close, this guy is teaching long form improv. And I go, what does that mean? And he said, basically it means you step on stage and whatever you say happens. And the only rule is that the other person can't say no to what you've said and you can't say no to what they've said. And at that exact moment, I uh, said, I'm dropping out of college. Uh, I'm selling my comic book collection. I bought a Chrysler New Yorker, 1978 Chrysler New Yorker. And I called my parents and said, I'm done, I'm leaving. And they just were horrified and yelling at me. And I was like, no, no, this is what I've been waiting for. And I moved to Chicago and started working this long form improv. And it was as good as advertised. And, and it's a lot of it is kind of, they didn't build it this way, but a lot of it is kind of based on that um, a kind of a montage form where it's like one beat of a scene, second beat of a scene, third beat of a scene. I guess like Dos Passos would be a, a writer you might reference. Um, there are certain filmmakers who have used it, and it, it changed my life. I mean, once I started getting into it, we, every night we were improvising original plays is basically what was happening. It's like an instant play. It's like Plato for um, comedy. Yeah. <laughs> for those of us that know Plato. Um, and, uh, well, I mean, there has been references to learning with Del Close in, in that period and, and applying that to your, um, your drama. Um, and I know you mentioned that Del Close uh, was doing horror, horror heralds. So a horror story, not comedy, but in an improv manner. Um, does it, I mean, does any of this work into like your writing or uh, directing? 
today? Absolutely. I mean, I'm I'm in my early 20s, and there's this guy, Del Close, who is legendary. I mean, Del Close, for people that don't know him, I mean, he was the director of the committee, which if you want to know who the committee is, watch Billy Jack. That's the improv group in there. He did light shows for The Grateful Dead. He hung out with Lenny Bruce. He was an actor. He was a stand-up comic. He was on Fernwood Tonight. He was basically the coolest guy in the room at all times. And he picked us as his experimental group. And clearly where he wanted to take us was outside comedy. Uh, he, By the way, he trained uh, Gilda Radner, Bill Murray, Chris Farley, Mike Meyer, on and on and on, like anyone you can imagine. He was the guy who directed them and, and taught them. So by the end of our time with him, he, he created a form called the deconstruction, uh, deconstructive horror. And what it was was we would take a news story from Chicago, it's probably around 93, that was heartbreaking, that was about a death, that was about neglect. And we would be doing this improv show for a Chicago improv audience and in the middle of it, it would become very dramatic. And 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 his number one thing was like, look, I don't care if, if it's funny by accident or whatever, just treat the story with respect. And we would do these scenes, and they, they were not funny. And half the audience would get out and walk out every single night. And, this uh, is the horror, horror one? Or? Yeah, yeah, the deconstructive. So it was more one. dramatic? What's that? More drama-oriented than... Oh, it was impossible for it not to be drama. And he, you know, he was like, that's fine. Like, let the audience walk out. And I think that was like one of the most freeing experiences I ever had, the idea that you could be working on something, you could be creating something, and an audience could be rejecting you, but it's okay you're moving to something else that's past this. And I remember it was very strange to have a director tell us that, like, great work. Uh, half the audience worked, uh, walked out. Uh, great work, like, like that dude back there. And, uh, and he was like, yeah, yeah, learn to be cool with it. Do, uh, does that happen on your set, like for, um, for Vice? Are you in a scene and you're trying stuff out, or does anyone... Are some of the actors aware of this past, or are, are, there, are they well, com a, comedians? Or? A lot of people don't know this, but I'll say it tonight. Sean Penn was originally cast in this movie, and the first day of shooting, I showed up, and Sean Penn was there, and I started improvising. He was like, F*** this, and I was like, good luck to you. <laughs> No, no, that you did not him. happen. That did, that did not happen. No, no, no. The way, the way it comes across with, with filmmaking is that you just give an extra bit of freedom. That, you know, the great, the great thing with filmmaking is that, you know, we're rolling film. So, you know, you, you know this. You, you get your takes that are off the script. I always like joke that the script is the legal obligation. And then after the legal obligation, then we get to play around. Then we get to goof around. Then I get to throw stuff out. And who cares if it looks terrible? And my refrain is, don't worry. If it's terrible, I won't put it in. I say it over. One of my favorite experiences was um, we did a comedy years ago with uh, Will Ferrell and Mark Wahlberg called The Other Guys. And uh, Sam Jackson was in it. 
And so Sam Jackson is in a car that's being held by like a gimbal in front of a green screen. And I start throwing all lines out to him. He's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, let's just get them as lines. They might work. He's like, nope. And the entire crew just turns and looks at me like, holy shit. No one said that to him at this point. And I go, Sam, if it sucks, I won't use it. I promise. And there's a long beat. And he goes, what was the line again? <laughs> I start giving him the lines. And so people get it. They get the idea that it's, you know. Get used to it. Yeah. <clears throat> um, when I, uh, I visited you on the set of Anchorman 2, <clears throat> and um, you were by um, the monitor, and you had a microphone like this. And during, uh, <clears throat> during the shot, which was, was when uh, Ron Burgundy, Will's character, comes and meets, he's faced with all the other uh, celebrity newscasters, which is a pinnacle scene, I guess. I just, ha I just happened to be there. And um, <clears throat> so you did the legal take, which was three minutes. And then you picked up the mic and you said a few things or um, there were, I mean, you and Will had a code, so you said a couple things or maybe even his, say something about his teeth, his teeth and, and one of the other <laughs> newscasters. And Will would go on for 40 minutes. Like literally, like after the three minute intro, <laughs> like 35 minutes later, it was still happening. So were you using like a microphone on your on this set and <laughs> PA system? Uh, no, it's very different. Well, actually, I do use a microphone, but it's uh, with this kind of movie. You you let them do the script. You have these actors that have prepared so much. You let them go as deep as you want. You come out on set. You talk to them. You go back. I mean, you know, same thing you do. And then at the very how end... Do you, how I do you know I do that? Uh, you just seem like that kind of guy. I can tell. You seem like a, hey, is everything all right? Kind of guy. <laughs> I have no idea. But, um, and uh, so, yeah, we would do several takes like that. And then eventually... Uh, they knew, they knew, and Christian knew, and Amy knew, and everyone. I told them, I go, there's going to be a point at which I'm going to throw you some new lines, and if they don't feel right, don't do them. Everything's cool. I mean, the whole kind of approach to it is everything's cool. Like, we just got it. You just acted the shit out of it. We still have all this weird equipment pointed at you. Why not? Like, yeah, and, sure. and it's kind of really the, the premise is why not? And they love it. They, you know, and actors love it. They love the uh, the time where you can screw up and try stuff. And there's a ton of that in this movie. There's a ton of like, what you really get out of those moments is you get behavior. And there's nothing quite like behavior. You know, there's acting, there's great line readings, there's great character work. But when it becomes behavior, that's something extra special. Um, and working with Christian Bale, I mean, this is an, an amazing, amazing, amazing transformation. I, I've seen him do other things that are amazing, but I, I sort of always thought I was looking at Dick Cheney and not Christian Bale. Was there any <laughs> special um, remembrances of working with him? I mean, I'll, you know, 
I hope no one has cell phones up or no one's gonna tweet this, but it was all steroids. The entire thing. Uh, no, it's the, it's the fucking craziest thing I've ever seen in my entire life. Is my, is my wife Shira here? I mean, we were like, you gotta be kidding me. Uh, because when he came in and I talked to him, I said like, look, Christian, you don't have to look exactly like him. I want the impression, I want that vibe of that guy in the room, that just like solid power that just boom, you know, draws your attention. And he agreed. And I go, we don't have to be, you know, perfectly accurate. And I talked about that with Sam Rockwell and I talked about it with uh, Amy Adams and Carell and everyone and Tyler Perry. And, um, and but once Bale was in, he was in. And every little movement had a psychological history to it. And the weight gain wasn't random. It wasn't just like, I'm going to get big. It was like the perfect amount of weight gain based on where he needed to be. And the makeup with Greg Canham, who's one of the great makeup artists ever, if you ever have a chance to work with him, 100%. And Chris Gallagher and his whole team, oh my God, they were amazing. And so by our fourth makeup session, I just was like, oh, you gotta be kidding me. This is crazy, we're done. And uh, Canham and Bale were like, no, we're not. And I definitely had learned at that point, like, shut your mouth. So uh, the next session was the one where he walked out with the suit and the makeup and they had tweaked it. And I've, it, was, it was witchy, it was like they summoned him is what I say. And like my hair stood up on my arms and he started doing that walk. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen in my entire life. It, it, it wasn't like someone was playing a character. It was like the guy was there. And, uh, and everyone just got very quiet. All, the whole group that was watching it, everyone just got very quiet. It was, uh, yeah, it was an amazing thing to see. I, I kept joking if this was 300 years ago, you'd be strung up for black magic. Uh, and I'm not sure you shouldn't now. And <laughs> um, do you, um, through all your readings and, and making this movie, did you, do you think that Cheney thought of himself as a good guy? I mean, in the end, he sort of explains everything. But. You know, that, I think you and I talked about this. One of the movies I looked at for this movie a lot was uh, Sid and Nancy by a great, director Alex Cox and I think I think this story is about power I, I, I you know I read the power broker the Caro novel which is amazing if you get a chance to read it and I just think there's no other vice than power that can replicate itself like love I think power is the one thing where you walk into a room and everyone, you know, their eyes light up and they need you. And I think the two of them got addicted to it. I, I, so I think by the end, I, it wasn't even that question. I think they were chasing that. And one of the biggest surprises of this movie for me was by the end, how sad I felt for him and his family and obviously our country and obviously Iraq and obviously everything was that that you just get lost in this, you know? And was there another influence uh, from a book about Robert Moses? Uh, well, I mean, I, what's that? Uh, Robert Moses, the um, planner, the city planner in the New York. Broker, yeah, the power yeah. broker, yeah. Oh, that was the power broker, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. 
Yeah, that was, book was incredible. Uh, Robert Caro, that that uh, that book like blew me away. I've never read anything like it. There were two pieces of writing that like to me encapsulated the the kind of uh, uh, I don't know what you call it addictive sort of waft of power. And I would say it's Shakespeare and and Caro. And uh, so that's what led to the Shakespeare scene in the movie was I was writing that scene and I was like, this, Jesus Christ, this is so Shakespearean. I was like, well, screw it. I'll write fake Shakespeare. So I, I just wrote fake Shakespeare in there. But um, Caro, man, I don't know. There's not many people like him. Are, are you a fan of his at all? No, I don't know his work. Uh, uh, he's just a guy. Like the people that know him say he's like monastic that he'll take an entire three months to write like a four page scene that he'll research everything. And I just don't think there's any more detailed work out there about power, the rise of power. And it's clearly what he's into. I mean, those LBJ books, I don't know have people read the LBJ Caro books. Uh, well, this, that's rough. Wow. Um, have people, <laughs> They're worth checking out. They're pretty amazing. <laughs> and the power broker, you could actually save a lot of time because the LBJ books are like, you know, 900 pages a piece. But if you read the power broker, first off, it's amazing. I didn't know about Robert Moses. I didn't know how he had created New York State and New York City and really the framework for cities and then had lost his mind with power. It's an incredible story. I think they're doing a, a, a series on it, aren't they? No one here again? This is, uh, okay, okay. Um, but anyway, uh, The Power Broker, yes, big influence on this movie. Um, are there any questions? Uh, the question is about editing, non-linear editing, like the big short. Uh, yeah, do we go into it knowing that we're gonna do that? No, everything is in the moment everything is you know there's the script is written the way it's written and i'm lucky enough to have the one of the great editors of all time hank corwin who is yes couldn't agree more and so he's kind of like jackson pollock and i'm a little bit more like whoever the boring figurative painting is painter is so the two of us go back and forth in this kind of way and there are spurts of kind of impressionistic energy that come into the movie and we have this kind of give and take between the two of us and every single month of editing uh and i like to screen for friends uh we're constantly challenging that the entire time the give and take between the impressionistic and the uh, the narrative. Um, so no, we, we don't know exactly coming into it what it's gonna be. So the scenes are sometimes full and then you're kind of like intercutting them sometimes. Exactly, exactly. There are times where we realize like the character work, you know, for me this movie's about a love story, it's about family. Oh my God, we're rich on that now. And I would actually tell Hank, I was like, Hank, I think we're we're filled up with family and love story go to town, like go Ornette Coleman. And he would, he would get so happy. He'd be like, really? And I'd be like, yeah, go ahead. And uh, so it was that give and take was happening. Uh, so the question is, was the book that I picked up, Angler by uh, Jane Mayer? Jane Mayer wrote um, uh, The Dark Side, and she wrote uh, 
uh, and Angler was written by Barton Gelman, which, by the way, is a book that I read for sure. Uh, the book that I read was actually called like, it was not the best book on Cheney. I think it was like Cheney in his own words by like Stephen Hayes. It was, it was kind of a C minus book. And, and that's what kind of blew me away about it. I could tell it wasn't a serious book. And then from that moment on, I was like, okay, Ron Suskind, Jane Mayer, like David Korn, like, I mean, there are so many great books and, and, and a, Big gratitude to this movie for all the amazing journalists out there who have just done great books, interviews, pieces. We, we gave them a special thanks in the movie, and it's not enough because that's the way the movie happened. But uh, no, that wasn't the first one, but Jane Mayer was definitely a huge part of this movie. So the question is, uh, the narrator, where did the narrator come from? How early did I know the narrator would be a major part of it? There are about six or seven elements to this movie. When I started reading all those books, going back to your thing about Jane Mayer, um, I was just reading these, and, and my wife remembers, I was just reading book after book and article after article, and I just couldn't believe how epic the story was. Um, and there was definitely this point that um, uh uh, there were like five or six elements to the kind of structure of the story. And, and you probably have had this, Gus, where you start seeing the shape of your movie, right? You know you have this, you know you have this, you know you have this. You have a, a kind of progression. And when I started thinking about the fact that, wow, like he, he literally took a heart. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. And... uh and then you look at kind of what happened with his family and you look at the country. So that, that was pretty early on. Uh, question is, what didn't make the cut? Which, Gus, I'm sure you're very comfortable with these questions as well. Very familiar. Uh, we had two big chunks that did not make the movie. The first chunk was we had a whole section about young Dick Cheney and young Lynn Cheney where they were 16, 17 years old, different actors. Oh my God, our DP, Greg Frazier, shot some of the most beautiful footage you ever, you wanna eat it, it looks so good. And boy, audiences did not care. <laughs> oh my God, they didn't care. And then the second thing we shot was when Rumsfeld was teaching uh, Cheney about Washington, D.C. We shot this beautiful musical sequence with, uh, I'm not kidding, with incredible choreography, and it was like, you know, neither a borrower nor a lender be, except in this case, neither a borrower nor a borrower be. And, uh, and we had this incredible musical sequence, and boy, it didn't work. And we tried it like nine, 10 times. We would trim it, we would make it longer, we would put scenes in, and, and those were really the two big things in the first act. The first act was the hardest part, part of this movie. We struggled with the uh, first act forever, and, and you know how it is. It's like, sometimes it's the late second act, sometimes it's the very thing that you're hitting in the end. In this case, it was all first act. It was. Jesus Christ, how do you get an audience of 400 people to go along for a ride about one of the most boring bureaucrats in American history, <laughs> yet a guy who killed arguably a million people? You know, I mean, like one of the darkest tragedies in American history, yet one of the more obscure 
tragedies in American history. So that was kind of what we, we struggled with in the beginning. We knew we had weight to this story. We knew it was important. But we had to really kind of have a conversation with the audience about how to get into this. Were there traditional tests that you used? I love testing. Yeah, I, 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 I did small tests for friends. I occasionally would, you know, have them get the full audience test uh, where you get punched in the mouth by like a mall audience. And uh, as miserable as those tests are, I find they're very helpful. I don't, I'm, I'm not slavish to them. I don't, I don't think that every response is, is perfect, but you can feel that energy with a crowd of three, 400 people. Do you ever test? Yes, us? I have. Under, really? You know, usually under the direction of the company that's paying for it. But oh, really? Um, I do like them because it's like a contest almost. I kind of do too, right? Yeah. What have you tested before? Uh, milk. We tested uh, Goodwill Hunting. Oh, you tested milk, really? Yeah. And it tested it did, well. Um, I assume we sh we tested milk in Seattle, and it tested very high. And they thought maybe because I was from the Northwest, we should try somewhere else. So we went to Vegas, and we got the same score. <laughs> By the way, Vegas is where you go if you want to cheat your score and get it higher. Is that right? Yeah. Did, you didn't test. You didn't test like movies like Elephant, did you? No, 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 no. It was I HBO constantly, stuff. every time I see Gus, he's so annoyed with me because I tell him Elephant is like the American masterpiece that has never been recognized as the American. Oh, thanks. Right? Well, that was a movie where like all the dialogue was improv by the kids. Are you serious? Just entirely. I could do it too. Can I interview you about Elephant sure. at some point? <laughs> Honest to God, I think it's a masterpiece. I think that and Foxcatcher are the two movies that I would show people if you want to understand where America is right now and people leave on that. Okay. All right, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. If you'd like to hear more from director Adam McKay, check out episode seven, where Mr. McKay discusses his DGA Award-nominated film, The Big Short, with director Paul Thomas Anderson. You can find past episodes of The Director's Cut wherever you listen to podcasts. Stay tuned for more episodes, including our upcoming Meet the Nominees series, which will feature panel discussions with DGA Award-nominated feature film and documentary directors. And be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Also, if you're enjoying our podcast, please take a moment to rate and review us on iTunes. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow cinephiles find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America. Music is by Dan Wally. 